My ideas come from above, a higher source. I just kind of sit like this, and I just wait for that moment. Like, come on, because it, it has to be like something out there beyond me. Like, all right, I will be alive for a short time, but this energy was here before me, and it will be here after me. And then I just, I let it run through. Welcome to the Idea Generation Podcast, a show about creative entrepreneurship. My name is Noah Callahan-Bever, and each week I talk to the most innovative ideators in culture and try to figure out how they make their creative decisions. This week, I'm talking to The Alchemist, who made his mark in the late 90s producing classic beats for artists like Mob Deep and Jadakiss. But Al would come into his own nearly 20 years later when he decided to cut out the music industry middleman and start selling to fans direct. This podcast is brought to you by the good people at Shopify. Feeling that entrepreneurial itch? Turn your passion into a business with Shopify. They've got everything you need to start, run, or grow your business. Check out shopify.com idea to learn more. Known for providing unbelievably hard beats for even unbelievably harder rappers, Alan Alchemist Mammon actually grew up in sunny Beverly Hills. Obsessed with hip-hop as a teenager, he aspired to be a rapper too, and that pursuit brought him into contact with an unusual mix of people, including Will I Am, Scott Kahn, and even Cypress Hill. When did you sort of first develop your relationship with music? We used to have like a piano in the house. My grandma knew how to play piano a little bit, and she'd come over and play some time. It was, it was more like just a thing in the house. But I used to go over there and try to sound little things out. I think my mom saw early on that I was into it. And so she tried to give me piano lessons. She was like, I'm going to get you piano. Now, you know a kid, and it was probably elementary school, not high school yet, you know piano lessons is not what's up. You sound like a dork. Like, what? Piano lessons? So I fought it. But I did it. But I always kind of kept that sensibility of, of music. So that was like the beginning of just like, you know, being creative, whatnot, and then, um, yeah, we had a group early on as kids. My brother, me, my oh, brother, yeah. and a couple guys, we had like a little fake rap group when we were in elementary school called the Dope Poet Society. It was like, now that I look back and I'm like seeing the effect that rap had early on, on a place like Beverly Hills where we were these kids out there, we were raised by rap. Like, we were walking around the house saying all the rap lines, parents thought we were insane, like, what are they talking about? You know, it, it was like raising us as much as school our parents did, you know? What was it about hip-hop that, like, grabbed you? I don't remember. Breakdancing hit. We were really into breakdancing in the early 80s, and it was like the soundtrack to it. Um, my first experience with music prior to that, like my oldest brother, Eric, he took me to a U2 concert. Oh. When they had Sunday Bloody Sunday. I don't know what year this was. It was definitely the 80s. Okay. So I liked U2 a little bit when I was a kid before I got in there. Like, you know, when you're a kid, you yeah, get, yeah. you know, what your parents listen to. Or, what you say? Were, you, were your folks into music? Yeah. Yeah. Like, my dad had his favorites. He liked ABBA. He liked Nat King Cole. He liked, uh, it was like a, a, this strange mix. He, he liked Perez Parado. Okay. And they had a record collection. You know what I mean? From the 80s left over. And, and those were some of my first beats. But I do think I have a theory for, like, rappers I think producers also that like anytime I get with an artist and start working with them and start to figure out their sound palette or what interests them and what pulls emotion out of them, it's a lot of times 
once I find those from playing different beats and go, oh, okay, he likes a lot of Brazilian samples or he likes solar, it's really related to what they heard as a kid. So once you get into it, once you ask them questions, probably that's the type of stuff their parents were listening to. So when did you start really wanting to participate in hip hop? Oh, I can't remember exactly when, but I was always creative and I would, um, my first stages was, were rapping. I would memorize a rhyme, change a couple of words, put my name in it. Those were my first stages and like, I felt like I, I had rhythm and I figured out how to make things bounce and sounds just by imitating my favorite rappers. And um, yeah, that's how it started. And then you go from there to start writing your own rhymes to trying to figure out who you want to sound like and what you want to, you know, what you want to do. And uh, I was always a good writer as a kid, like prior to rap. But uh, anything creative and writing was like, uh, I was great at, you know? So when it came time to rapping. When did you make the transition to like, all right, let's, let's write real songs? It was always just a thing for, we did for fun. And um, then I connected with Scott Kahn, my man. Me and him got together. And me and Scott got together and his mom had a connection of this guy named Phil something. He was an old guy, Phil, and he was like, he managed a bass player named Don Boyette. This is crazy that I can remember these things, man. Jesus Christ. But he was a bass player for Michael Jackson. Okay. On tour, at least. He toured with Michael Jackson, and he was like a bass player. He lived, he had a house in Hollywood. He was like a bass producer, musician guy. Phil managed him. Somehow, Scott's mom was like, Phil became our manager, me and Scott. So we formed a group called The Lower Level, and it was like me and him rapping. And uh, I wasn't, nobody was making beats yet. This guy made our beats. Don oh, really? Boyette, he made the first track that we ever rhymed on. And it was like, of course, everybody's first song is called Positive Vibe. Like, <laughs> of course, it was very positive, And it was like, yo, Scott, kick it. And like Scott came in and it was like, it's a positive vibe. And it was... This is like 89? Found 89 or 90, I'd say. So you're like 14, 15? Earlier. 13. Oh, wow. 13, okay. Yeah. It was about 15, we had the deal. Holy shit, okay. So it was like 13, 14, and um, it never worked out. And like, we were just kind of, I don't know what ever happened out of all that. It never really amounted to anything, but at the time, Scott knew this kid in Venice. He was like, yo, my boy Vane. You know, he rhymes too. We're going to get up with him. I remember one night we went to uh, the Troubadour. It used to be called Gazzari's or something. It was a, a club in, Sun in, in Hollywood. Where it was like an open mic that night. And I remember going there with Scott and Evidence. His, his graffiti name was Vane. When I met Evidence, he was already rapping. Really? Yeah, the day I met him, he, he came. We were outside and he walked up. He knew Scott and said, what up? And he was like, had mad spaces in his teeth and was smoking a cigarette. And was like, yo, they got an open mic? Like, he was all excited to rhyme. I'll never forget. And I seen him. I'm like, this kid's crazy. And then, like, we all, he knew Scott. So then, like, we kept in touch. And he was already rapping and kind of doing his thing with Will. I am. Really? Who was Willie1x at the time. From uh, At Bank Clan. Yes. Prior to At Bank Clan. So the At Bank okay. Clan hadn't been even invented yet. So he's just Will1x. Will was just a young guy in L.A. And where we all connected was this club called Ballistics. There was a club that happened every Thursday night on Sunset at the Whiskey. And every Thursday, it was 
put together by David Faustino, a.k.a. Bud Bundy, yep. um, and another guy named Dan Eisenstein. And they were like, Dan was this kid from Beverly Hills, and we knew him, and they would do this, like, you think once a month or every Thursday? It was Thursday nights at the Whiskey. And it was an all-ages all kind of thing. It was a hip-hop, all-ages party. DJ Speed from NWA was one of the DJs. Rest in peace, Rob One was one of the DJs. And um, we would all meet there every Thursday. That's the first time I met DJ AM. He was rapping at the time. He was in a group called Stoned Weight Crew. He looked like MC Search. He, he was coming there to do his sound check because I guess he was performing that night. But this club was where we all connected. And there's like me, Scott, Evidence, uh, Seth, who's Shifty from Crazy Town, Will I Am, um, and there's like a handful of other guys. But we would all kind of link up at this party every Thursday. And it was hip hop club. And at the end of the night, they would always do a freestyle session. And every night, like clockwork, Will would win. Like, Will is so talented and was as a kid, because I, he was from the hood. He was like, he stayed with his grandma in South Central, but he was a part of that project where they would like bring certain kids from the hood into like the richer neighborhoods. Okay. And he went to school in Pacific Palisades. Oh, okay. So that's kind of how we met him and kind of got in the loop with him, if I remember. But he was so talented, man. He was Willie 1X, he had the little dreads. And he would freestyle and win every single night. He was like, seeing him now successful makes more sense than anything. Like if he wouldn't have grown to it, it would have been a, sh a shame. He was so good, clearly better than everyone. But at the time, him and Ev were real tight and they had a group. So him and Ev were working together and uh, they didn't really have a name, but they had some songs. Were they about the same age as you? They were. I think Will was a little older, but we were, me and Ev were the same. And Ev and Will were working together. They didn't really have a name of the group. They had a song called Simple Song. Yo, it's as simple as that. Yo, it's as simple. And it was the same sample as Passing Me By Far Side, before the Far Side, because it was produced by QD3, who was Evidence's neighbor. Evidence lived in Venice on Six and Rose. His neighbor was Quincy Jones the third. So he, so he had the record because it's Quincy. So Ev was being produced. When I met him, he was already like, I'm living next door to QD3. I'm working with this kid, Will. And they had this song already called Simple Song, and it was that sample. And it was kind of ill because it was Quincy Jones' son using it. Years later, song never came out. Years later, Farside blew up with it. Just a small side note. But that's how the connection happened um, where evidence was like, yo, I'm going to bring you and Scott to meet Q. So he brought us to meet QD3, who was Ev's neighbor. He had long dreads at the time. He had a pit bull. He lived in Venice Beach. He was cool as hell. Smoked weed. We used to go over there and just like kick it. That was some of my first times watching music be made. And um, th th that's when Scott and I started. We created the Hooligans. Switched the name and was like, okay, start working on music with Q. And Q took a liking to us. It was like, man, you guys are really dope. We, so we kind of built our demo together, out working with Q, like producing with me and Scott rapping. And that's how we developed. We did, we had a four song demo and it started getting a little buzz on the, on the West side. And um, yeah, it was a four song demo. And that's how we ended up getting our record deal it was from that four song demo that Q did. Where did you end up signing? We ended up signing to Tommy Boy. Um, Quincy was kind of like, helping us shop it, we were working with him. We had a meeting with Ice Cube, his DJP, uh, street knowledge was going on at the time. 
And I remember Q set up Quincy, who wasn't really working with Cube yet. Over the years later, they made a lot of classics. But I don't think Quincy had been working with him yet. DJ P set up a meeting, and we went out to the studio. I think it was called Echo Sound in L.A. to go meet with Ice Cube, me and Scott and Q. And this was like right when he had Wicked. He hadn't dropped Wicked yet. He had it. He played it for us. He, and uh, he played us a couple other songs. He was working on his album. We were blown away. So he's, get, he's getting ready for The Predator, basically? Yes. Working on that album. We had a meeting with him. He just tells us he wants to sign us. He has a whole plan for us. He wants us to wear hoodies, gold fronts, Timberlands, keep our hoodies, like telling us all that y'all gonna keep the Timberland hoodies on. And this, this is when Das Effects was big too. So he was kind of like, whatever it was, it's like East West street knowledge, we're gonna sign you. We were hyped. Like, man, this is it. And then after that, we left the meeting and was like, oh, gold fronts, hoodies. This. We were like real jazzy. Our music sounded like Tribe Called Quest more, you know? Mm -hmm. So we were like, ah, I don't know. And then like a week later, we got a meeting with Buzz Tone Management, which was managing Cypress Hill, yep. House of Pain. And we just, at that day, we met B-Real. He was in the office. He was cool as hell. We kind of told him, and, and then we ended up going with them instead, basically. And uh, Buzz Tone was managing us, and then they got us to deal with Tommy Boy. All right, so, so you guys get signed. You go on tour with Cypress and, and the whole Soul Assassin crew. Mm -hmm. What was that feeling that, that first time you stepped on the stage and there's... You got 10,000 people or 15,000 people? It was definitely um, surreal. I, I was nervous, definitely. But I I think that was a good thing. I never got... Nowadays, like over the years now, I ain't even tripping. We do shows. I'm high, drunk. It's time, showtime. Let's go. We're in the middle of a conversation still talking to someone on the way to the stage. Like, yeah, okay, hold on a minute. Or DJing. But then it was really nerve-wracking. You know what I mean? So it was like... That made me uh, kind of like more of an animal. And, and uh, it was fucking so much fun. You know, like got to bring all my homies out when we came to L.A. We did the show right over here in Santa Monica. And, and um, phew, insane. It was a short set, but uh, it really taught me. And I was on tour with some real MCs, you know, Be Real, Everlast, you know, Sun Doobie. Um, so uh, I... Those were some of my first days also going to record stores with Lethal, DJ Lethal from House of Pink, who would like go to stores. We'd be in like St. Louis. He'd like take me to the record store and he'd just be like, yeah, box up the whole jazz and soul section. We don't got time. And he would just buy the whole sections and then he'd sit on his bus and I'd come in there and smoke with him. And he'd have the, the turntable on his bus, take it from Soundcheck, you know, and he'll be like, yo, listen, Listen to this record, see how it just sounds good. Listen to this record, it just sounds like shit. Yo, listen right here, see the groove? That's where the breakdowns are. And listen, you can, okay. So like he was already schooling me on shit early, lethal, okay. as far as like records. I wasn't making beats yet, but uh, I was just a sponge as a kid. So um, yeah, that tour was insane. And it was like, we would always go out all together too. But we had a great time, man. And. Uh, those, yeah, those were the first days. Though his first attempt to participate in the culture fizzled, his ambition to be a rapper would put the 15-year-old on tour with Cypress Hill and under the wing of DJ Muggs. With Muggs' tutelage, Alchemist would switch vocations from MC to beatmaker and find his true calling. At the same time, there was an underground scene bubbling in New York that he wanted to be a part of. He just had to get through college first. 
from that tour, things eventually sort of go off the rails for the group. What yeah. happened? I don't know exactly how it went. We dropped the single. We had a video. This is when the box was on TV. We used to like order it up on the box, and all our homies would do it. And it was like, damn, it had some promise. We thought it was gonna like break through, but at that time, everybody had a different opinion, and um, I guess they didn't like the results they had from the single, Tommy Boy, mm -hmm. and they just shelved the album. We had a whole album that we finished. It was production from T. Ray, um, the Baker Boys, Lethal, and um, yeah, I still have it somewhere, and. Um, we kind of got shelf, and it was like, we're not sure what's going to happen. This is when I was, I would say, uh, sophomore, you know, mm -hmm. high school. And um, we kind of like, I kept doing music. Evidence was a soloist. He was already doing his thing. And it was like, I started getting into beats because when we got our budget, I bought an ASR-10. Lethal took me to Guitar Center. And it was like, I wanted the SP-1200. Everybody around me had SPs. Yep. Muggs, Lethal, Ralph M., they all, like... But then Lethal was like, yo, buy this. I'm like, that's a keyboard. I don't play keys. He's like, nah, it's a sampler, too. It does everything the SP does. You should get it. You know, it had just come out. And they had the Ensonic EPS-16 before that, but this was right when the ASR came out. He's like, buy it. I didn't even know what I was... I'm like, dude, I don't play keys. He's like, trust me. And that's what I bought and trusted him and... That's how I developed my style. And, like, I think after we finished the whole album, the label was bullshitting. Like, yeah, man, we'll give you a little budget to make some more songs. The album is not done. And I went in and made my first two beats ever. One was, like, called Across the Map. It was, like, a, it's probably out on the internet somewhere. Like, hooligan song with evidence rapping on it. And, like, Lethal kind of, like, manned the MP and let me kind of, like, do it. Then later on, I had the ASR, started doing my own shit. Now, uh, Muggs had noticed that I I was, like, making beats. And uh, in the early days, like, even the whole Soul Assassin tour, I was kind of scared of Muggs. He was really, like, intimidating. He was the big dog, you know? He was, like, the main guy, like, the producer. Yeah, I was kind of intimidated by Muggs on that tour. And after the tour, B-Real moved to Venice and got a crib in Venice. And he had a studio in his garage set up ASR-10, and I used to go there and make beats in the garage. And Muggs would come through and see me over there messing around and was like, yo, come to the crib with me, man. I'm working on a Cypress 3 album. And then that's how I kind of went from hanging with B to, like, Muggs saying, come to my crib up in Nichols Canyon in Hollywood. And I would go to his house on the weekends. I would sleep on Muggs' couch, and we would just work on beats. And I was like, he saw how, like, excited I was to work. This is after the hooligans. I'm in high school. I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm like, Beats is dope. Fuck. Okay. And I write rhymes every now and then, but it was like Beats started becoming really interesting to me. You know what I mean? And uh, I was really good with the ASR 10, so that was like my job. And uh, you know, I had a good ear, so he would give me boxes of records. And, you know, go through records and I would find samples and like pull them up on the ASR and maybe chop some and maybe make like a halfway of a beat. We worked together on that whole album, but I was nobody yet. And I didn't really have a, a name yet. Like I was sleeping on his couch. He was giving me thousands of dollars a week and every week cash, taking me to Benihana's for lunch. It was like, this was the best shit ever. There's enough weed as I wanted. It was like, I was in high school, yeah. you know, I was killing it. I did a lot on that album. Then when it came out, I didn't really have a credit on it. And um, some of my homies 
from when I grew up with that knew me and stuff were kind of like, damn, man, you did all this, did you do all the stuff you ain't getting the credit? And I was like feeling kind of a way, but it, I I didn't mind because I knew it wasn't my position. I didn't have a name yet, and Muggs was paying me well, keeping me in the mix, and it was a great opportunity, and. I was still paying my dues, and I felt like the ones I needed to know knew. And it all paid off because how you think I met Mobdy? Through Mugs. So it's, it's funny how it all, you know, works. Yeah. So you guys do the third Cypress album, but shortly thereafter you end up coming to New York yeah. to go to school. Yeah. At NYU. Well, I had to go to college. I always, that was always part of the plan. Your parents were? They were, you know, And you were definitely. committed to it too? I definitely felt like I could go to school. I was always good in school, and I felt like no matter what, that's not a bad thing to go to school. Yeah, You know what I mean? So, but I put all my eggs in one basket because I didn't really try out for school. I went NYU. That was it. Like, And I wrote this essay where it was like, I heard that NYU likes people who have been involved in arts in any level or some type of entertainment or like if there's a way that they could say you might do something later. You know, I, I felt, I heard that. So I wrote this thing saying I was already signed and I did all this music and this, and it, and it helped me get in. And I, you know, had a good GPA also. I ended up getting accepted to NYU. College was dope because it, it kind of like, the whole gist of it to me was like, all right, you guys got past all that other shit, the memorization, all that. You got past it, finally. Now we're gonna keep it real. We don't want you to memorize stuff anymore. Read it, question it, and look at it from another perspective, angle, ask questions like, it's, and which is, I'm kind of skeptic by nature, so it, it spoke to me. So school was dope, a lot of fun. I loved NYU, but it was like, I never knew how I was gonna make any money. I just didn't have a plan on like what I would do after it. So while I was in New York, I was going to school, doing pretty good, but I was still making beats, developing my craft, met Mighty Mai, met Stretch, met Dante Ross, uh, you know, met John Schechter who had game records. And these were some of the early guys who embraced what I was doing. Like this kid is dope. And you still have no like production credits to your name? No, not yet. Like officially? I think probably I don't. I'd have to look to see if three MCs had been released yet. Dilated. Oh, the dilated. Yeah. It might have been that some was like dilated songs. Fall of '97, probably. It was. Pro those were the first ones. Okay. Right. And um, so that's when I first kind of started getting known on the underground when I had moved out there. Going and so to that's school. evidence in New York. I mean, in LA, he yes. started getting it going with ABB, right? Yes, he was on, and that gave me a platform to do beats, and I started getting known a little bit in those worlds, like Stretch. And Stretch and Bob were, you know, they were so unique and important for all of us just because, like, you know, I used to listen to their shows religiously, you know, and record them and everything. And, and um, to get accepted by them, like I was doing Buck 50 when yep. I first moved to New York, was an artist I was producing. Just a friend of mine trying to do a record. Muggs gave me some money and was like, let's press this up. Soul Assassin's record, we just did his 12-inch. And I worked it like we were a label and Stretch started playing it. Stretch and Bob, I always loved them because they knew they had, like, their show was valuable and vital to this ecosystem, which was connected to the record stores in New York, which were selling all our f singles, Fat Beats being the main one. Yeah. So, like, they were kind of like the audio hub. So, all right, you listen to Stretch, you listen to what's in his mix that week. All those are available that week at Fat Beats, right? And then he wouldn't only play it one week. 
If you had a single out, he would, for four weeks in a row, every week he would still run your record because he knew what you were trying to do and it was like a way to stimulate this ecosystem of kids going to the store, going to Fat Beats or Rock and Soul. Yo, what's that joint? You know this joint? I heard it on, here it is right there and selling some records. And those early days were like, that's how Dilated got a deal on Capitol Records. Like they literally were putting 12, in, we were doing 12 inches on ABB through Fat Beats, vinyl only. There was no streaming, no digital, nothing. No albums. We were just doing 12 inches, vinyl. One did 2,500, one did 5,000. And that was like, got on Capitol's radar. And it was like, speaking years later to Slug from Rhyme Sayers yeah. and Atmosphere. And, you know, looking up to him and what he built. And, you know, trying to pick his brain one day. I mean, at Rhyme Sayers is just a whole... It's incredible what they built, you know, with their festival. And I was like, how did you do it? And he was like, what do you mean? He's like telling me and Ev, we were putting music out when you guys were doing your dilated 12 inches. And we couldn't get a deal. We were this little group in Minnesota. We were trying to do exactly what y'all did. It was We wanted to get a deal. Nobody would sign us. Necessity became the mother of invention and they formed a company. And that was the blessing ever that happened to them is then they were able to grow and build what they had, have now. But at the time, they were like, we were trying to do what you guys did. It just didn't happen. Like, you know, so I think those early days and like Stretch and Bob, like I said, and, you know, Mighty Mai who, and, 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 and um, John Schechter, who, who, you know, had game records and Mighty Mai had high and mighty Eastern Conference records. And, you know, Dante Ross had stimulated. And, you know, these are some of the early guys who were like, saw the talent in me as a producer. Uh, and were like giving me gigs or, yo, let's put something out. Or, you know, did beats for High and Mighty's albums and did Open Mic Night, which was a single, which was like one of the first joints that got me burned. That was like, people knew the beat. It was like, oh, Alchemist. And uh, yeah, yeah, those were like the early days. Just New York, just testing the waters to see if I could do it. Armed with his weapon of choice, the ASR-10, and guided by mentors like DJ Muggs and DJ Lethal, Alchemist paid dues and learned everything that he could. He was still in school, but every day he was making connections and getting closer to his dream, until he made a beat that would be the catalyst for his career. So how did you transition from that to starting to shop beats to, you know, artists that were signed to labels? Yeah, we kind of built up a little partnership, all of us, early on, just in the dorms, just selling little bits of weed. And um, that enabled me, through those years, that little bit of money that I would make kind of, like, enabled me. At the time, my parents were giving me, I think, like $1,000 a month to survive, to live. Like, here, we're going to help you out. And I think I, at the time, I was selling the weed with my roommates, and I made out, I, I think... I worked long enough to save 10 months worth of those checks, save like 10 G. I did, never would spend the check they were giving me. I didn't tell them two years later. And it was like, once I had like 10 grand in a bank account, I remember like calling my parents going, yeah, I'm good from here. I'm going to try and just, I wanted, I always wanted to push off. Like I always wanted to feel my own weight. Like, man, I, it's a blessing in the world to have family that can help and be, you know, financially, that's the greatest thing in the world. But then it also made me want to feel what it would be like on my own. I always wanted to feel my own weight. And it was like, that's when I first did that. From there, transition to music was after two years. I did two years at NYU. I was doing that little bit of producing for the high and mighty or the far right or dilated. 
And then uh, I, I sat with the advisor who looked at my GPA and was like, all right, you got to pick a major now. I was like, I don't really know what I want to pick, but, you know, I'm doing a lot of music. It's, it's been fairly decent. I have a history before that I did. I showed her everything. I told her what was up. She was like, you know what? If you want to give it a shot and you think you could make it work, we'll try. And you can always come back after a semester if it's not working. And I was like, cool. And I was like, can you tell my mom and dad that too? <laughs> I called them. Yeah, and even the advisor said, they were like, I don't know, you're going to stay in New York? I was like, yeah. And then after two years, you know, I, I, I pushed off and didn't go back to school. And I stayed in New York, got an apartment. And I just, just, just like, I'm going to make it work. I didn't know I was going to link with Mob Deep or, you know, or like some of my early days of stuff. Well, the first thing I did was I got a Cypress Hill remix that Muggs hooked up, Tequila Sunrise. From the fourth album. Yes, and it had Fat Joe on it. Yep. And that was the first time I worked with a rapper that was kind of, I'll never forget, he took the, the bus to L.A. He had his tour bus. He wasn't flying back then. And, uh, yeah, that was literally like my first thing with a big rapper. And, um, yeah, that kind of started it. And I would, th those years, I was going on tour with Cypress every summer. So as I was now the alchemist, that young producer, Muggs Protégé, I would go on tour with them. They were doing Smoking Grooves every summer, which was a tour that was going on from House of Blues. One year it was like us, Cypress Hill, the Fugees, uh, Tribe Called Quest, Buster Rhymes. Another year it was Cypress Hill, George Clinton, P-Funk, and Public Enemy, and Nas. And like every year it was a crazy mix and Cypress was always on it and I would roll with mugs and kind of be his assistant, carry records, whatever they needed me to do. I was there. It was just like, I'm there. And every summer, 97, 98, 99, and uh, I used to be on the back of the tour bus or just doing chores, uh, whatever needed to be done. I remember like one year they had a blow up doll, this huge Buddha, like halfway through the show, they would smoke out the stage and make it dark. And then uh, they would play the intro to I Want to Get High, like extended. And then it would be my job to go creep to the back and turn on the air to blow up. All of a sudden, this huge Buddha doll would, would like just emerge and then the beat would drop and I used to have to shake the doll to make it look like it was dancing until I wanted to get high. So like, I would always have odd jobs, but it was like the best shit ever because I was on tour with the big homies and, you know, that's one, that's one year when uh, Gangstar was on tour and um, Premier was already like one of my friends, which was already crazy because that was like my idol living in New York linked with him so we were both like yo we're gonna go on tour together next month because it was you know the tour coming up was smoking grooves he had gangstar and his crew mop freddie fox and i'm going with mugs and the night before tour was the picture that's online of me premiere and jay dilla and yep. d'angelo that was the night before Smoking Roof's tour. I went to go see Premier. He's like, we going on tour tomorrow. And I was like, yeah, because I'm going with Muggs. And he was going, but we were already friends. He's like, come by the studio. And that was that night. He was doing Devil's Pie the night before we left. And um, yeah, but that's how like Freddie Fox came on the tour bus one day and was like, saw me on the back making a beat. And was like, what's this? I'm like, yeah. he's like, oh, you make beats? I'm like, yeah, he's like, well, what's up? You, you do beats for Cypress? I'm like, well, you know, I'm, if they need me. He's like, you live in New York? Say so he's I'm fucking with you when you get back. Take my number. I'm I'm fucking with you. I was like, dope. 
And then when we got back, he kept it true to his word and hit me up. And that's how we did stock in the game and tell him I'm here. That was from the industry shakedown? Yeah. Yep. And that was a big deal, you know, for me to have somebody like Freddie. I mean, I'll never forget the night P called me. And I didn't know them very well yet, Mob Deep, but said, yo, bring that beat through, done. I knew what beat he meant. It was the realest. The night we did that song, the next morning I had a session with Freddie Fox and I was like going to sleep early. I was literally going to sleep early because I had a morning session with Freddie at D&D. And I remember P calling me and saying to bring the beat and I brought my ASR, that's when we did the realest. It was literally in the same day, yeah. At this point, like, how were you imagining your career sort of playing out over the next few years? I didn't really know where it was gonna go. I just wanted to be a, a, a threat. Like, I, I was now honing my production craft, and I'm not like some of these guys who are like, your first beats are the beats people have heard. I had a lot of time to, to develop my style. It was eras of me making beats that nobody heard except for probably Evidence, where it was like I was just imitating Premier, just straight copying him. You know what I mean? I would like somehow find whatever his good beat was at the moment, I'd find a record that sounded like it. It wasn't the same. Mm -hmm. I would literally use other records and find shit that was similar, cut it the same way, and like Evidence used to come over and be like, nope. I'd play him the beat, he'd be like, that shit sounds too much like Premier. You gotta, and I, I didn't have my sound yet, you know? And it took me a long time to develop what I felt was gonna be like something unique, which was basically my expression as a producer. Which beats were the ones where you felt like, okay, now I've moved in, I, I have a voice? I think Keep It Thorough was like real important because I remember at the time when I first got with Mob Deep, the joints we did, I was like, you know, the realest, which people love now, but it was like a loop. Mm -hmm. You know, not getting too technical. There wasn't a lot of um, busy work underneath the hood on that one. It was just a great, it was just a great moment. Great. It was the right timing. It was the EQ. The engineer, Steve, the engineer, did a lot of work because there wasn't much to do on it because it was a loop. But we gated out the kicks and snares and add, re added them. And we did some work to say, you know, the least. But um, it was still like a, not a, one of my favorite beats at the time. That beat on was, I used to call it an interlude. Those moments in between songs were some of the greatest moments. So when it came out and everybody loved it, like, I was kind of insecure. I didn't know how to accept it yet. Because I was in, from a school of beat makers where it was like that. It was kind of a no-no. Like, yo, you just looped it? Like, it was nothing technical to it, you know? And I've grown as a producer, obviously, but at that time, that's how I felt. So after that, and like a couple things there, I felt like I gotta prove I'm not just a guy who found a good part of a record. And then when we landed Keep It Thorough, because we, once P started working, we, once I started working with the Mob on the Murder Music album and built the relationship. I was gonna say, when he reached out about the beat, you guys knew each other, but- We had already, well, you'd the, met the way the story is, is, to make it short, is I had moved to New York early on connected me with those people I told you before, Renee, Ricky Powell, and then he was like, yo, he was just working on his Soul Assassins album. Mob Deep was a legendary group who I idolized before I even knew them, you know? So once I moved to New York, Muggs had worked with them on his album and told me, yo, when I worked with them, I met their young guys. They got these guys down with them, infamous Mob. It's like, they're young guys. You're my young homie. You guys should hook up in New York. 
So I was like, cool. I didn't really know anyone other than, you know, Mighty Mai and the people that I mentioned before and my homies at college. So I was like, dope, link me up. So we linked up. And uh, Muggs even said, booked a studio session and booked it for D&D and, and I went over there and met them. And that day we met and we made Thug Music. P wasn't on it yet. It was just oh, that was an infamous, infamous mob, mob song that I was doing for Muggs. And I'll never forget, they called P from D&D on the phone when we were in the room doing Thug Music and played it for him on the speaker. And he was like, yeah, that shit, ew. And he was like, I hadn't met P yet, or Havoc. And um, I was just like, wow, Prodigy likes this shit. They were like, yeah, he said he may want to get on it. I'm like, this is crazy. It went from that to P hearing it saying, we want to use that for our album because we need an infamous mob song. And I had to ask Muggs if it was cool. And Muggs looked out, and I gave him back the money, whatever he spent for the session, and he let me have that song. He could have just been like, nah, that's my shit. He let his young guy grow. That's why I said, like, Muggs is a type of big homie. Like, he always, I knew, was proud of me when I did what I did because it was an extension of Soul Assassins. You know what I mean? I'm part of this team. He put me on this, always going to be that. So I think he was proud to see that. You know what I mean? Which is why when that opportunity came and I told him it's going to be on a Mob Deep album, he was with it, you know? And I would go to Soundtrack with the infamous, with, with Gotti, Ron Gotti, Twin, Nitty, Godfather, and the, the rest of their crew. And I had this one dat, played him a bunch of beats, and then he would be like, I like this one beat. He liked one beat on there. I like this one. So I, I would come back two days later or three days later, and then P would be there. But having P were never there together in the beginning. And then I would play that same dat for P, and he'd be like, skim through, I like this one beat. It was the same beat that have like. It was the realest. So then fast forward to, you know, a month or so later was when P called me and said, yo, bring that beat through, son, to soundtrack. And I was like, I was nighttime, like 9 o'clock. It's like, all right, cool. I packed up the ASR 10, big-ass keyboard and shit. I'm like, you know. Yeah, I went to soundtrack studios, walk in the room, and then G-Rap is just sitting there. You know, I was just like, whoa. You know, it's like, of course, we grew up off of cool G-Rap. And um, P was like, yo, we want to use immediately. Yo, you know that beat? We want to use that shit for G-Rap. I'm like... This was the greatest opportunity. He just told me, put the beat up for us with cool G-Rap. I was like, crazy? Track beat instantly. G-Rap wrote his shit so fast. He was the first. That's why he went first. And he went in the booth and he laid it and everybody was just like, man. It was just like one of those moments in a studio where you're just like happy to be there. And um, yeah, that's how that relationship started with Mob Deep. After establishing a connection with Mob Deep, Alchemist would become an extremely in-demand producer. He generally let the music speak for himself, but sometimes he struggled to find his own voice. So once you get those the Mob and then the Prodigy records out, your name starts to really ring off in terms, you know, in, in a larger way in hip hop. What was the process like of trying to sell beats back in? 99, 2000, 2001. Yeah, selling beats back then was a lot of a hustle, but it was very, um, you had to be physically out there. Like there was no email. Um, and you kind of, if you didn't have a guy on your team who was doing it for you, which was kind of rare back then, you kind of had to be your own machine. Like it was aggressive. And it, it was like, um, it was a network of guys. We were all like-minded, 
who uh, all wanted to get that shot to be on those albums because as a producer, the ones I looked up to coming up, they all produced whole albums first. So like Large Professor did Main Source, Premier did Gangstar, Muggs did Cypress Hill, you know, whatever. You can go on. They produced whole bodies for a group that made you want to hear their production outside of that. Mm -hmm. I think I was one of those guys came in that next generation of producers who was kind of like a nomad. I didn't have a home. I didn't have my own album. So, and that's how it felt sometimes. Like, it's time to, like, okay, I need to be on as many albums as possible. And I need a, I need a, a name tag. Alchemist. Like, I, that was all intentional. You know, it was like, I want to be known. I want people to know I made this beat. So at that time, everybody who was working, we kind of knew the producers that, that were kind of on their beat grind as far as like trying to sell beats or whatever. Like um, we would go to sessions. So you're, just, would, you're running up in studio. Straight up running up in the studio, making my own phone calls. I didn't have a manager at the time. And it was like, so I would make relationships. So if Macho was the guy who handled all Fat Joe stuff or Reef was the A&R, I would make relationships. Just keep going down the list of the people in the inner circles of camps. How are you meeting these people? Um, how the hell was I meeting them? I think, I think every situation was different, but it was just through being out and about and just kind of having a name at that point or just some type of name that was buzzing and having friends who were just referencing. Or, and um, yeah, it, it was like um, you really ate what you killed at the time. And that was really the basis of it. Like, you know, uh, I got a new batch. All right, cool. I got to hit up everybody this week because I'm trying to start a bidding war because shit, I'm going, I'm trying to go to Joe's session and play something for him. And if he likes it, I'm like, you better cut that. It was all about who's cutting that first half and when. And I remember seeing a lot of that. Like as producers, we were like salesmen. Or I, sometimes I would come through and I'd have to wait an hour and sit there while, you know, go to see Pun, but then uh, Sean C came to play beats and Mike D came to play some beats and you gotta wait, Charlemagne, the producer, you know? And then, okay, then it's your turn. And you might be sitting there waiting with your dad and then they play some, somebody else plays something that's crazy and now you're like, fuck, I don't have that. Or you might get intimidated like, oh man, you know? And it was um, all the producers, we kind of stayed on our toes. Like I felt like the camaraderie with producers it's different than rappers. Also, like I saw people sell beats before by their like antics. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Or like and that's when I also realized that like beats are cool. But I think I was a quiet person and I felt like I needed the music to speak louder than me. So I felt like the, the, the music, I was always like, just let me just get the press play, man. I'm not trying to hit you with a whole song and dance and a spiel and do a bunch of shit to sell this. You know, that was never my thing. Yeah, like some producers, like I used to watch Premiere, he would like press play and turn his back and have his face to the speakers. He wasn't even looking at you. You know this shit is good. I ain't got to look at you in the eye and be like, this is it, you know? And it's like, uh, yeah, I've seen that happen too before. Like I remember... <laughs> I remember we were doing the Godson album at Electric Lady. We were finishing the album. Nas was working on Godson. Um, and like the door just busts open and in comes uh, my man Grady and fight behind him is Swiss. Swiss best friends is doing it. He's like, 
hold on, Nas in here? You know you can't finish an album without Swiss beats. He was like, give me the tape, Grady. And Nas is like, what's up? We all said, we up to Swiss. Like, Swiss made a movie. He came in there. He get, grabbed the dad. He's like, hold on. Put the dad in. Press play on this beat. Man, he turned the, the knob on the board to ear bleed. Like, he turned it as far as it could go. Man, this beat came on. It was so loud. <laughs> the soda can that was on the table was dancing to it, right? And it was hard. And he's just looking at Nas, right, like this. And he's like looking at Nas, staring at him like this. And then Nas looks at him and he's like, yeah. <laughs> like he like gangstered him. <laughs> like it was so loud, you had to move. And then he leaned over and said something. I think he was like, let him hold the beat or like you can just use it, whatever. They ended up making a song and they made the album. I forget what it was. But it was like, it was a great beat. Yep. Swiss is incredible. But I also saw the power of, you know, the presentation, the sale. So in that period before that, though, where you're shopping beats and you're getting little placements here and there, you know, like you said, you're an artist, but you're also a businessman. You're listening to what's on the radio. You're watching people's reaction. Was the market informing your artistic decisions at all? Or like how no, were you navigating that? I don't part? think the market was. I think it was just a genuine love for the music that we were all knee deep in and the virtue of the artists I was working with being some of the biggest. So I didn't have to change my style. I never felt pressure from the music industry to make something that was relevant. But I will say as a producer, once I moved to New York and then towards the late 90s, early 2000s, the sound was starting to change. And you know, the digging in the crate style and beat nuts raw style was kind of morphing in a, in a natural way, but like some of the Bad Boy stuff and Puffy Productions and Dre Productions were like very sonic. Mm -hmm. So there was like this moment when I remember we were all, when I say we, I mean like the Just or the Kanye's and of that time producing was like, I remember there was like this unspoken effort to use samples, right? Soul records, whatnot, old sounding lo-fi, but use drum sounds from like the Triton, the Trinity and keyboards and use bright, R&B almost, or sonic sounding drums and bass lines with the soul records. And that's what We Gonna Make It was. And that's what, uh, you know, a lot of stuff at the time, it was like meshing, trying to make a more polished sound that could hit, be sonic, but also be raw. And I think um, it was a great time because the people I was down with, the locks, Mob Deep, these are the biggest guys in New York. So, you know, you had the tunnel, you had all these other places where when we make one of these joints, they're going to function immediately in the places where people are going out and they turn into commercial records. So, you know, Mob always had commercial success being hardcore. That's how we pulled off Got It Twisted. Like, I'll never forget the meeting, you know? Like, they were at Jive at the time, and um, Kanye West was big, and we had produced the entire album was done and they were like Chris Lighty was like let's have a meeting at Jive to listen to the whole album I have did the majority I had got it twisted on there and when you hear that and little John had a joint on there um and then Kanye had that throw your hands in there right so we go to the we go to the meeting at Jive and ha Peak picked me up and said come with me to the meeting man I felt kind of weird about it I'm like it's y'all album should I really come with you? He's like, yeah, man, we're going to listen to the whole album with the, with the owners of Jive. We're going to pick the singles because we really wanted Got It Twisted. We knew Got It Twisted was mm -hmm. going to be a hit, right? 
So we get to the meeting, Barry Weiss, Chris Lighty, all of us, we all sit down in this room. Chris Lighty goes, all right, hold on, before we start, I want to bring in Who Kid. Who Kid is the ear of the streets, and I really respect his opinion, so we want to hear what he has to say. At first, I was like, what the fuck is going on? Why is Who Kid in here? You know what I mean? Yeah, what's, yeah. Just, what's going on here? So, cool. Play the whole album, every song. Have the most of them, boom, and listen to everything. All right, singles, let's go back. They went straight to the Kanye joint and my joint. Straight to it. Let's just reevaluate those. He played the Kanye West joint. Barry White's going crazy bangers. He said, my son loves Kanye West. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> me and Pete, we love that record, but we knew God It Twisted was the one, but I couldn't speak up for it because I made the beat. Yeah. So I'm sitting in the meeting. We listened to the whole album. Now we're going back. Everybody says, let's go back to the two main songs, God It Twisted and the thing. So we played the, we played the Kanye one. All right, everybody went crazy. Cool, cool. Then we played God It Twisted again, right? Everyone's listening to it, and then who kid stepped out of nowhere and was like, are you guys serious? This is a no-brainer. Are we really deciding? He said, one sounds like Saturday afternoon, the other one sounds like you're getting stabbed in a club. This is Mob Deep. He's and, and everybody, and that was it. And I swear after that, I hugged that motherfucker. I was like, yo, you're the best, man. <laughs> like, I was like, he, he was just being genuine. Mm -hmm. Like, and it always was a weird thing for me because, you know, I couldn't speak up. I produced the record. You know, but I, but I had to. I sat in that meeting. It was, it was fun. I'll never forget it. And afterwards, me and Pete were like, we went to eat and celebrated. Like, yeah, we did it. Because like, you know, we knew God Twisted was going to be a good record. Have you ever had a big idea but lacked the tools to implement it? Look no further than Shopify. Shopify is the brand that powers all your favorite clothing, beauty, and sneaker brands, and offers the best-in-class commerce tools to allow you to sell online, in person and on all major social platforms. Shopify fuels millions of entrepreneurs and turns ambition into action. Check out shopify.com slash idea to learn more. Now back to the story. Alchemist had established himself as one of hip hop's best producers, but he aspired for more. Growing up, he looked up to legends like DJ Premier, Pete Rock, and Large Professor, who were known not just for beats, but for crafting whole albums. With that in mind, he started working on his first album, 2004's First Infantry, but that required him to step from behind the scenes and embrace being an artist. How were you negotiating things like your rate and like, as I imagine it's changing as you're getting more and more placements, like... I never had like a goal or a dollar amount that I was like, if I'm making this much, that's gonna work. But in the early days, it was all about an advance. That's all I cared about. And I didn't even know about publishing or any of that shit, honestly. And I think that's a blessing. Because had I known about all that shit early, probably wouldn't have did so many beats that ended up becoming great beats. Because I might have been like, wait a minute, what's my split on the publishing? How much are they taking on the sample? Oh, hell no. Yeah, it hurt my pockets a little bit, probably. But I wouldn't take it back for a million years because I have my discography. So, you know, like, I feel like sometimes when I think back, my ignorance was a blessing and a curse because it gave me my discography, enabled me to make these beats that if there was a manager or me thinking too business-minded, it would have fucked the whole thing up. Just like if I would have called the manager when P said to lay that beat, who knows what would have happened? You know, I trusted my gut all the time and um, I know the value and I'm about making money at the same time, all money isn't good either. Mm. You know, so you gotta kinda, kinda gotta know how and what to negotiate that. But I think over time, I let the business, I guess, dictate what, what the price was. And um, there were times when I made a whole lot off advances. But then 
that's the whole game was that. It was just getting advanced. And then I got to a certain point where it was like, okay, what's my future? What am I going to do now? Now I'm here. Okay, people know me. Did some cool beats. And that's when I went back to my old thought of, damn, all the people I looked up to made whole albums. I got to make an album. Doing all these beats here and there, two beats here, three beats there. Cool. Can you make a whole album? And that's when it was my goal, when I did First Infantry. I was like, I want to make an album. I want to make a plate. Like, fuck that, you know? And uh, that, of course, opened up more doors, which I didn't see coming. How did that change when you went from being a behind-the-scenes person to then being the front-facing? It wasn't a plan in that aspect. It was a goal to produce an album in its entirety, and I didn't have anyone else who was like, yo, we want you to do this whole album. I was like, well, fuck it, I'll produce my own album. You know what I'm saying? I don't know where it's gonna go. I know traditionally, like Marley Marlin, Control, and Dre albums, like it's, there's always a, it's almost like, how do you sell Pete Rock album, one of the best? Like all these things were great, but it's, as a producer, it's always been a tricky thing. Like, how do you sell a producer as an artist? You know? So then, when it came time for me to do my debut album with featuring all these rappers I work with, like, yo, I'm gonna do an album, would you guys give me something? And I did a lot of trades early on. But that was something I did a lot. That I don't know if a manager would have recommended. It's like, yo, hold that beat. I need something from you, I'm working on an album. Or sometimes it would be like, yo, I need, I need you from, on the album I'm working on, um, this beat right here. Uh, all right, I'll do that for you. I, well, I'm not really into that beat. Then they'll do it. Yo, I need this song. It came out too crazy. And I would always let him hold it. Go ahead. Just give me another one. I'll always take the bullet first, you know, just to build that relationship. So that was the beginning of, yo, I'm gonna make an album, you know, and then, but then hold you down, like, all right. <clears throat> I always rapped first. That was what I did first. It was always in me. It was like a passionate thing. I love rap. But I realized over time I became more competitive and great at producing. And I don't feel like I'm a threat as an MC, but I feel like I could hold my weight as a producer. But over the years, like, I, I would always write every now and then. Like, I always think of raps when I'm making a beat. If I'm mumbling some lines or I'm imagining some rapper, like, it's the same way I'm imagining a bass line or a drum. I'm imagining rap always, you know? And I kept it kind of in the back of my head. So every now and then, like, when you make, I'd make beats, sometimes I'd find a beat and I'd be like, I'm going to write a rhyme to this. It would never be a beat that I could sell. Because obviously I'd think, man, I'm, these beats I'm going to use to, yep. right? It would be like the experimental beats, you know, which I remember reading Kanye early on who said the opposite. He was like, whenever you sell beats for yourself, use your best beats for yourself. I was like, damn, I never did that. I used to take the weird beats and try to write a rhyme as a challenge, you know, just to keep my pen on point and rap. And so when I got down with the mob, we kind of built a relationship that was beyond just producing. They saw I was in L.A., the whole crew really took to me. I became much tighter with them other than just in the studio. And um, I would be around Twin and Nitty and you know, all of them. And I felt like I, I had some songs that I was working. I started playing them little things every now and then. Oh, you're all right, sound all right, you know? And I felt comfortable with Twin and certain people to like do songs and write stuff and kind of like, man, it's decent. You know what I mean? I always was a nice MC, okay. So then that's how that led to me even being confident enough to play raps for Prodigy or somebody. And of course, I was some, some of it I can't even listen to now. It's like cringe because I, I was being 
so inspired that I was trying to be Havoc or somebody. You're like, yo, what the hell? But it was like the inspiration was really taking me to a place where it was like giving me the confidence and it, you know, generated some good stuff. And like Hold You Down was a loose record. We made it to Crib. It wasn't, I wasn't making it for my album, but then when it was time to work on the album, I had that. And there was like, this is catchy and it's me and all right, fuck it, I'll rap on it. Or I was already on it, I'm saying, we'll do make it to single, because then for Kachi, it was like an opportunity to promote me as an artist. Or, for, or it would normally be harder if you're a producer on an album, you know, otherwise, like, what are you gonna do? Stand behind a rapper and go, yo, 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 this is my shit. This is just me rapping. And it was kind of awkward because some people thought I was a rapper at first. Mm -hmm. But it took and it worked. And Prodigy was on the first verse. And he was as hot as fish grease at the time. And Nina Sky was just blowing up. And yep. It all just connected. But yeah, that, that was the, the beginning of me wanting to make whole albums. So that's where that all came from. So I want to make an album. Say, so Did you feel like your sound started to evolve as this time was going on? Yeah. Yeah, I, I feel like I had a sound, I had a style. I'm, I wasn't sure where rap was going, or how it was changing, but it was like around that time, 2010, was when I linked up with Oh No, made Gang Green, and uh, started listening more to like a lot of Mad Lib shit, which I already knew Mad Lib from day one, Loot Pack. Yeah. You know, we go back to those days when we were doing hooligans shows, but I was out of tune. The, the mob run, I was so wrapped up. And what we were doing, yep. and I missed a lot of shit, man. Years later, I went back and realized how great their run was. And there was other shit that I slept on. I was late. And we discovered, was just like, what was I, what's going on? How did I not hear this all? Because I was so on our shit, like, we're doing our mob shit right now. We got this locked. This, you know what I mean? I really wasn't Well, also, hip-hop was so bifurcated in that time where it was like, either you were part of, like, the mainstream, which was at that time like, you know, kind of like thugged out club music, and then the South, right? Or you were doing like Mad Lib Dilla, MF yeah. Doom shit, yeah. you know, on Baby Grand or whatever. I feel like I always had a foot in both worlds because of groups like Dilated. Yeah. So I feel like that was something that made me unique also, um, was to be able to be rooted in both worlds. I feel like I was, I built up a reputation working with more street artists when I moved to New York, and that's the sound that I was drawn to. And um, I feel gave me a balance that was pretty cool. Having a foot in both worlds, I think, helped me a lot. I noticed that little bit of difference where yeah. there was like, okay, different sides here, everybody's not down with everything. But I was stubborn and felt like I could do both and, you know, make it work. So in 2007, you did what would become the first of a series of collaborative albums that you've continue to do to this day how did you end up deciding you and Prodigy were going to work on the Return of the Mac together Return of the Mac was after uh, G-Unit album and um, we were like it did good but it didn't do what we wanted it to do with the G-Unit album and I remember P was like trying to show 50 like man I gotta, we gotta show him man we got that shit like hold on a minute like it was good but he was like man and we were sitting in the crib which he used to have a gold Mac 10 that he wore. Like it was one of his first pieces of jewelry and it had a clip that slid out. He told me, and I forgot, he said what happened to it. They lost it. Something fucking happened. That's kind of a dope idea, like return of the Mac. Like going back to that era. It was around Hell on Earth era. And there's pictures of him with it. He used to damn near live with me at that time. Like he would come through every day, stay late, and leave powdered white donut wrappers everywhere and just like leave a mess and write rhymes and we would 
watch YouTube stuff for hours. He used to record stuff off of YouTube with his VHS camera because he's like, some of this info is going to go away. Like, P was insane. Sitting there talking about the chain and how they're fronting on us and we got to show 50 that we got this shit. And um, we came up with the name. And then I was like, yo, we should we can mess with a bunch of black exploitation films and stuff just because of the name Mac, you know, like the Mac, Return to the Mac. So that's kind of the rough idea. I don't remember the first song we did. It might have been. And I always liked how Nas had a version of that from Marley Mall. So I was just telling that he like we should flip that. And it also was Hustlers, Ice Team. So we did a couple songs and it started going good. And that was the first time that I noticed P trusted me all the way, like eight Eight times out of ten, if I had a beat at that point, it was like, yo, I got something I think you'll like. If I played it, yo, that's ill. Let that play. I'm going to start writing. Like, all right, he trusts me. He knows I know the sound. And that's when we just started going. And it was like, all right, just, we knocked that tape out quick. And um, it was just going to be a mixtape. And then it was just like, we got to put this out for real. Being able to do that whole project and, and have P meant a lot to me at the time. Because it was like... Uh, yeah, started what I can look back on as a crazy run of being able to do whole albums, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, did, you, did it change how you thought about production or making music? Yeah, because when you make a song, let's say someone raps on a song and like, it's on the album, it's like, oh, you got to mix a song, it's three minutes. There's an intro, there's the first verse, the chorus, the second chorus, the outro. There's sections of a song, right? And you put in your magnifying glass and you make each section special. Right. An album is a big song. Right. So if you have a three minute song, well, then you stretch it. It's a 30 minute song, an album, you know, and there's moments everywhere throughout that album. Just like there's moments in a song. If you, I started looking at it like that, like, all right, if I could keep a song interesting, then I got to be able to keep an album interesting and treat it like one big fucking song. So, like, I want this to be cohesive. So every beat got to be out the park. Like, now nah, I need the beat that the DJs are going to play. And then in that aspect, we would miss out on a cool or interesting piece of music that they might write something crazy to. And, you know, sometimes decent beats make great songs. Great beats don't always make great songs. Around that time also, the whole music industry starts to change. Yeah. How were you thinking about that? I was, like, skeptical about it all. But um, the music industry kind of burnt me out after like my run of doing uh, Hold You Down mm -hmm. and then having success as an artist and then coming back years later with my follow-up album and trying to do it bigger and making all these fucking mistakes that I'm like, damn, I wish I could have done it differently, you know? What but you I, like, I think every artist has their, exp has their version of this if they make it through the storm. And my point is that that, you know, first album came out, had success, didn't expect it. Then I arrived. Mob is on top. I'm here. I'm an artist now. You know, did a special with MTV. It was me, uh, Keisha Cole, me, Keisha Cole, and Life Jennings. The album, I felt like I was just here now. Like, I'm fine. So many things happening. And I took two, three years. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And it was way too long. And at that point, the sound was starting to change. And things were getting bigger. And I tried to compete. Thinking of my first album, like, I got to go up. All right, so now I got to get Twista and Maxwell on this joint. And I'm going to rhyme on it. And 
yo, I'm going to, you know what I mean? I got, I got, at one point, you know, Jim was hot and I was on Koch Jones mm -hmm. and they got me a Jim Jones verse for like some crazy amount of money. And I was convinced that this was going to be the answer to my career. And I made four versions of the Jim Jones verse. I got Nina Sky back on it. I, yo, I did so much. I ended up not using the song at all. None of them. And I did four versions and I'm just over here pulling my hair out. And when I listened back to that album or that moment in my career, I hate it. And it was just like me learning a lot of lessons as an artist. That's why I say when I see other young artists at that stage in their career, I wish I could tell them, trust me. I know you think you're accepting this challenge and all that. And it's a good thing to go bigger. But luckily, I made it out of that phase. And also, there was moments in that phase, too, like the Three Six Mafia um, and, and ju uh, Juvenile Joint. Mm -hmm. You know, the time that'll work, which was like to me experimental and kind of like uh, early on what was going to happen later with some trap beats and certain things. And like I was already, you know, bang, bang, that type of you, you do the drum pattern different. It's a trap beat, too. Like I, I was already experimenting with sounds, I think, at that time that would pay off later. But I do think that there was a weird phase. By 2010, Alchemist had a nearly 20-year career under his belt that anyone would envy. He had made his idols his rivals, he had produced classics for icons, and he had even become a star himself. Still, something was missing. So he moved back home to LA and started working with a crop of young talent that included then-newcomers like Schoolboy Q, Action Bronson, and Currency. And most importantly, he totally reinvented the way that he did business. So, so you do uh, the first infantry album, and that's like a, a real inflection point. And shortly thereafter, you end up deciding to move from New York to L.A. Well, it was a while after that. Was it? Hey, I stretched it. Hell yeah. I did a nice New York run and just uh, sowed the oats out there, just living the life. Out in 40th Street or whatever? Yeah, 30th. I always stayed in Manhattan. Yeah, all the way up to about 2010, to be honest. Really? Chemical Warfare, my second album, I was yep. still in New York. Posted up. Uh, never had a studio like this, which I regret. I always had little apartments and shit, but my crib was always like the, the post-up spot for the whole mob. Like, you know, we're in the city, go to Al's, meet up over there, you know. So I always had a spot in the city, so. Um, yeah, over there, did a lot of stuff all through those years and until I felt like a... Yeah, it wasn't after AM died that I moved, actually, officially, all the way back. And what, what inspired you to want to move home? Well, I, I started coming back around the turn of, you know, 2010 or whatever. I would always come back on trips, but I built a studio. You know, I was sitting there with my dad one day, and we were just talking about it. And he was like, are you serious? I can get a little square area right here. It was like a little, little building. It was like, all right. And we ended up building it up. And uh, we had the old studio, which was next door, I said, for, Matt, you know, six, seven years. And when this spot opened up we built it and it was like I was still going back and forth but I started feeling really creative in LA and I felt like the energy in LA was crushing New York with the freedom this was right when Odd Future was happening and right when TDE was happening you know what I mean and it was like all these things in LA were kind of like bubbling and sounding dope and then there was different people in all parts of LA that were fresh to me I was like, oh, I could build my little station over here in Santa Monica and just be a fixture for what I do out here. Weed was good, weather's good, people all coming through and having this great studio, it made me go, yeah, I'm going to stay here a little longer. And then rap camp started kind of developing and 
to me, that's like the whole phase two of my career of, of like, you know, from what I built to, all right, where do I go from here? How integral was getting this studio and creating the rap camp environment to you getting into that next phase? Very important. Um, and it kind of happened naturally because we were first over there working all the time when I kind of first started working with Action, met him, and he would come out here for weeks at a time, bring Body and Tommy Moss and stay on the couches, and we would just kind of have long week sessions. And it was just a great mix of people coming over, and I think it was Chuck English. I give him a lot of credit. Um, it was like one, I forget what year it was, the end of the year. New Year's, we had a party over there at the studio, and then we just had a barbecue. Action was there, and he was, like, cooking, and we just kept the barbecue going for a whole week. And it was just like, yeah, we just kept going. We just bought more coals and bought more food, more beers, weed, and put more songs up. And it was just like, this tight just didn't end for a week. And it was like, oh, there's some potential here, you know, for, for it to just be, like, a fun way to create and get a lot of, um, to me, it was some of the dopest MCs around and dope producers and it was like I used to watch footage of Beastie Boys when they had their studio here they had a half pipe yep. they had an indoor half pipe in the indoor half court and I used to talk to Mario C and he told me that they would get up late one or two they would show up fucking skate play some two on twos till the damn near sun went down right Jay would just kick it and then till when the sun went down, they would kind of like stumble into the room where the equipment was. Somebody would pick up a bass or a drum. And he was like, they would start jamming it. And I would, wouldn't say nothing. He said they would be playing for like an hour and all of a sudden they'd be in their groove. And he's like, I'll just hit record on a tape machine. And he said, I caught and that like, to me, I would, that always stuck with me. Like, damn, having an environment that's kind of like fun. Because mm -hmm. what we do is fun anyways. And I feel like, this is a way to get a lot of good music done. Because I started noticing that, you know, the studio was not a studio you could book. It was my own studio. It was my own thing, you know what I mean? And um, I started noticing that artists would come over who had deals and were working on albums, but they are like come over and almost like play hooky. Basically, no rules, there was no A&R, there was no managers really, there was no agenda. It was free, and it was like, but we knew everybody was competitive and wanted to create. So, like, I started noticing that this is a good environment for good music. At what point would you say that, like, the current paradigm that you're in now really, like, came into focus for you? A lot of different pieces slowly put themselves together, but I would say as far as where we're at right now, it was probably like maybe between three to five years ago. You know, I give a lot of credit to Knowledge, the producer. Like, he had his Bandcamp page. I didn't really understand Bandcamp. You know, here I am, an old school guy, still stuck in whatever the ways are that I know. Oh, Bandcamp. It was like, oh, it's like a, it's like a, it's like a iTunes, like my own. I'm like, huh? And he'd like pull up his Bandcamp page and it'd just be like 50 artworks of covers, album covers. I'm like, what are all these? He's like, different projects. You click on one, three beats, to, you know, $7.99. Like, oh, this is fresh, you know? I want one of these. And he kind of pushed me over to like finally doing it to where I finally did it one day. 
I made a Bandcamp page, and I put out a project called French Blends, and it was just instrumentals, digital only, and I sold it for like twenty bucks or whatever it was. And the next day, it was going straight to the PayPal, and I can't explain to you how it felt. This far in my career, all the money I made, all the shit I've done, this felt different. This was like, whoa, this is a main line. Like all the years of slow dripping and going through so many fucking different people. This is where it's at. This is it. Wow. This is the business of music that I could have probably figured out, you know, what's behind door number three this whole time. But they'll scare you into thinking that you can't do that shit. And once I did that and realized, holy shit. I can control my career for real now. I had watched a thing years back from a case study on, by Trent Reznor on YouTube, and it changed my life. He explained how you could sell stuff, even that's free, for more. And basically, they came up with a formula. RTB plus CWF equals success. And it was like, connect with fans plus reason to buy. That was it. And it was like, wow. All right, that mixed with how these things are becoming more artistic and our fan base is small, but they love what we do. And all right, looking at the clothing companies and all the people I know who kill it, you know, looking at what Virgil's doing or what all my friends who have clothing companies and Supreme who basically set the fucking framework on it. And it was like from that day forward, I started pressing my own stuff, choosing my quality, making my price points, creating a brand that is a brand that I would be a fan of. As you know, it was like, for so long, I always wanted to have a reputation as Alchemist, the producer. And I'm like, all right, my beats will let you know who Alchemist is. So you can add up all my beats on all these different albums and go, that's Al. We know Al as a brand. But then I started looking at Stone's Throw and Wolf and, and other people like, wow, their label is, an ex- is like my Alchemist, the name. Like they put music out through their label and their label has a taste. If I do a label, it could have a taste also. You know what I mean? And have a, a, a specific taste. So I was like, oh, okay, it's on now. And I started really creating products that I love, that I think are fresh, limiting them, putting high quality in them, making them a little more expensive, but limiting them. And, you know, at first I hit some kinks. It didn't always work at first. Some stuff fucked up and failed. Some stuff I had to just eat. Some stuff I straight ate because it was like, I knew the value of that versus leaving it out there for sale forever. This is a business. And so I, I slowly, through trial and error, every time I made a mistake, and it was, I loved it. I loved the mistakes because I was learning from them, and it was like, okay. And it took a year or two. And after two years of steady releases with ALC, with vinyl, then started doing limited cassette CD, limited merch, really putting care into the shit, like stuff I would want to buy. Like, you know what I mean? Using that RTB, CWF formula, thinking about a small group of people, not worrying about the whole fucking rap game, like whatever. I'm not in it anymore. This is a world I got. Thank God it exists. They're fucking with me. And then there was contemporaries like Wes and other people who really were killing it at the same time. And I feel like we developed this market. You know, and there are so many income streams now that once you figure it out, this is the best time ever. And I've been feeling... So good about it. That's how last year I was able to do the Boldy James and the Freddie Gibbs and like these albums that are now like, man, being able to create catalog under my own label. That's a dream. Now I'm building up a brand with my label the same way ALC was as a producer. And so I'm just kind of like, I always have new goals.
Um, my friend Brock was connected with Currency, brought him over. I didn't know much about what was going on with Currency in his career. It was early at the time, but he already had a career and fan base. And um, he came over to do a song, and we did two that day. And he wanted to drop them that night. And that blew my mind. Like, what do you mean we just recorded it? And he was like, nah, that's how I do it. This you is like the not right era when you just... Yes. And he was like, nah, I have a fan base. I feed them. And I was like, well, we just did these songs tonight. We don't want to drop them today. We, can we mix them first? He was like, all right, well, if that's not... We're not dropping these tonight. I need you to loop up this Rick Ross beat for me so I could do a freestyle. Or it was like some beat. And I was like, deal. I looped up some instrumental. He laid a freestyle, recorded it. He posted it up immediately after we recorded it. And he was like, all right, cool. Back to work. And I'm like, damn, like he really had the pressure to drop something tonight. <laughs> I was like, this is insane. I didn't get it yet. Then we did two songs. The next morning he was like, these songs are too good. Let's keep working. I'm going to stay in L.A. Fast forward, we made a whole album. And I remember distinctively not holding back on the beats. Like, you know, you always have a batch of beats at the time, but I was like, I'm giving them the ones I like right now. I'm giving them the good beats. I'm not, you know, sometimes you work with a new artist, you might test out some beats that are like, in your mind, not your best beats. Other people might love them, but this one, I was like, nah, like Full Metal, that joint was one of my favorite beats at the time. I sampled, you know what I mean? Whatever it was, I was like, there were certain beats on that album I, I didn't hold back. Did the album, and then... To make a long story short, there was some complications why we couldn't put it out through the label he was talking to at the time. And he was just like, yo, let's just he put would, it he out. He was doing a deal with the major? He had some situation with a major. Uh, this album was talked about going down. It didn't really work out once the deal happened. But we had the album, but it was just like the logistics of putting it out was getting messy with samples. And I don't remember exactly. It was like a lot of corporate issues that were fucking headaches. I was like, this is not going to happen. And I put in all this work, made a whole album that's dope. And Currency called me and was like, yo, I just want to put it out. I'll put it out. I'm just going to put it out for free. I'm like, ah, for free? Like, I've never done anything like that before in my life. Like, at this point, I'm already successful making music. This is my career. And, and he was like, man, listen, I'll pay you. And I was like, man, what am I going to take money from you? I'm not going to he probably just got the deal. He had some cash. He wanted this to come out. He knew the value. I was like, I'm not going to take money from you. He said, well, look, doing this collab with Diamond Capsule, we can make it a covert coop capsule, and I'll give you the bread. And I just took a risk. I was like, okay, we'll put the album out free and just sell the clothes. All right, whatever. And it worked. Boy, did it work. And it was one day of selling product. I mean, he had a good thing going with Diamond, what they were doing, and, you know, we... We've, at the time, they were Diamond was selling the stuff without making it. They would do the mock-up, and we were just mm -hmm. selling. So the day was going by of the release, and it was just selling like crazy. And I'm like, towards the end of the day, they were monitoring the sales, and they were like, all right, these shirts are slowing down. We're going to cut them off. I'm like, nah, I don't cut them off. I only get paid off this shit. Run it all fucking day. What do you mean? And they were like, no, no, no. You see, when we see the sales slow down, we cut them off. So some people show up and they still don't get it. It's how we maintain our brand. I didn't get it at first. I'm thinking all money's good, sell, sell, sell. And that's when I started learning how these brands build their companies. You know what I mean? By yep. you, don't, you don't just sell everything, you cut it off. It's okay, you'll miss some sales. You want some people to come to the store and be like, damn, I missed. There's a technique to all this shit. Those were the early days of me seeing that. So Covert Coop changed everything in my mind. 
as I never thought like that in the past. And it was like, you know, fuck the music industry. And just to be honest, like, it's a headache. It's a fucking disgusting industry. And I don't feel like I'm in it anymore. So when I make beats and I produce on someone's album, yeah, I'm in the industry. There's no way around it, okay? Got to get the lawyers, do the things, do the things. But for the most part, I'm running a microbrewery now, you know? I'm banging shit out, doing shit at my rate, tapped into a fan base that I'm directly connected through, through the places that I sell it, and just and totally in touch with the people. And it's a perfectly working ecosystem. So in that aspect, it's like I bailed out of the industry. And it feels great. And any time that I have to do a beat for somebody and I got to go through all the bullshit or I'm working with an artist who's a friend of mine and I'm seeing that shit again, I'm like, oh, it's still there. That fucking animal, that nasty thing is still there. It morphs. And now they do 360s and they do other things, but that nasty machine is there. And I don't think it's like, when I say nasty machine, I don't think their intent is to play me or like mess up the culture. It's a business, man. If business is not personal, they're here to make money. And in the process, you know, your, your dope thing may get spit up and chewed up and spit out for something else later. So, you know, with that in mind, I, I feel so good about the next phase that happened after that when I was able to. And then you got to think, turn of the 2010 era, right? Like. You know, Mob had done what they were going to do. Of course, they did more after, but they really, we did what we were going to do for the most part. Mm-hmm. Dilated. The groups that I was known for, right? Like, we, I was always affiliated with groups, but not fully a part of it. And I feel like that was that trivial, pivotal moment in my career where it was like, all right, am I going to be known as the guy that did Mob Deep and Dilated? Or these, I started meeting this new generation of kids who grew up off that shit. But they were turning a new page. Like this when is I'm, the Odd Futures and the TDEs. And when I met Schoolboy, you know, Brock, shout out to Brock, also brought Q and Kendrick over the same day. And uh, Dot was already signed, Kendrick, uh, Dot was already signed, Q just did his deal that day. And he came over here and he was like, man, I grew up, all, he said, I used to listen to First Infantry. That's why he said that on that song, the first song we did. He was serious. He's literally the first thing he told me. I'm like, you a crip? <laughs> ha? You, you right? Yeah, okay. And and uh, that was like me meeting that next generation action, um, Mac Miller, Schoolboy Q, Earl, uh, Domo Genesis, um, Danny Brown. Uh, and it was like this new batch of artists who were coming up. And I realized, damn, this is dope because they know me for what I did. So I can just be me. I don't have to chase any sound or trend. I can be me and build relationships with this new batch of kids who uh, their fans may not know Mob Deep or Dilated. You know what I mean? They did, as they did. They're the artists. But now here's my chance, like the burning bush. Like, all right, what do I do here? Do I just like, oh, rap changing, or do I embrace them and be like, yo, let's go. Let's make history. And, uh, and that was like, that changed everything for me um, for the next phase on how to um, transition from a period where I could have just been like a lot of contemporaries that I know. And I'm like, damn, what did they do after that? Like, you know, making relationships is so important. I've always been a people person. Um, and I don't link with everybody. When I think back, it was like that batch of talent that was coming up. And over the years after that, there's people I'm linked with, of course. That's how I met Griselda, you know? But it was like that one turn of that, that uh, 
you know, 2010 or whatever, around that time was all those guys that really helped give me another lease on rap as a producer to where it's so crazy. Now I'm seeing the guys who, like me, never heard Mob Deep in their life. You know, I just know you from Schoolboy Q, or I just know you from Action Bronson or whatever it I have done in the last 10 years, right? Now, now, now I got to pick the right ones who are like, I can um, align with to keep doing what I'm doing or just to keep the lineage going. And that's my way of saying it's always competition. The gym is always open. This rap shit, the lights do not go out. The gym is always open. So it's like, you know, as I get older, that's the shit that weighs on me because I don't have the same energy I had as a kid. Like these young motherfuckers, I got you. I'm on you, but you have more energy than me. So I'm aware, you know, that's why I get here early because I know these kids, they'll kick my ass. You know what I mean? So I, I, that's the only thing I hate about getting older is I have less energy. I get tired quicker, but I'm still have the same spirit to like, you know, um, improve or, or, or go further. Like I thankfully not at a place where I'm like, ah, oh, I've made it. You know, I'm still have goals. I still. You were saying you have new goals. What are your goals for the next few years? Um, just to, to, to um, always um, develop, take things further, and there's still a handful of people on my bucket list that's like, man, I feel like we have unfinished work to do or, or um, working with new artists, but it's uh, constantly growing and, um, yeah, like never stopping, like the evolution. Thanks for checking out this episode of the Idea Generation podcast featuring The Alchemist. If I learned anything from my conversation with Al, it's that freedom isn't just doing what you love. It's doing what you love exactly how you want to do it. Thanks to our sponsors at Shopify. If you're looking to start your own online store, check out shopify.com ideas. Success to me is to be profitable and, and do good and uh, support my lifestyle through something that I love to do.